This is Why Libertarian, the show dedicated to telling the stories of libertarians new and old, promoting libertarian values, and fighting against authoritarians, statists, feds, and anyone else who would like to steal your liberty and freedom. I am Matthew Strzok, and I would like to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Enjoy. more recent reason why is because uh what was it It was 1984 no 1994 now in 1994 i joined the united states army thank you for your service i appreciate that you're welcome uh thank you but you know 1994 i joined the united states army and of course with that came sort of an apolitical thing you know whatever the commander-in-chief wants me to do i'll go forth and do you know it's it's this is my job this is my career this is where i'm looking at it and you know, then 2001 happened, 9-11 happened. And, you know, by spring of 2002, I was sitting in Afghanistan in a command center, you know, doing intelligence analysis, you know, looking for bad guys in Afghanistan and trying to understand this new battlefield in this concept of, you know, here we were hunting terrorists, but it wasn't a war. Right. You know, this wasn't we were it was military operations other than war, but we were chasing bad guys that were supposedly being protected by and it, it got weird, you know, but it was still I'm thinking this is my job, you know, and but I'm paying attention. There's one of the things I was a military intelligence analyst. I spent some time in language training. It was Korean. It wasn't Persian, Farsi or, you know, any of those that actually was of any use in Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, but one of the things that I learned in trying to become a military intelligence analyst was understanding the culture. You know, so I took this learning how to understand Korean and the culture of South Korea and North Korea and started applying it to this area that I was analyzing in, you know, Afghanistan and then later on in Iraq and then back to Afghanistan, trying to understand the cultures that created the situation that I was trying to monitor. So, and it's like, I start looking at it and going, we're not helping here, you know? And that's where I start stepping back and I go, you know, I need to get involved with an organization. I need to get involved politically with an organization that really is serious about ending the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I stepped back and I got, well, uh, Obama had eight years. He didn't make it happen. Uh, You know, Bush, of course, had his eight years, you know, and mission was never accomplished. You know, and here we are 
you know, 2016 when I voted for Jill Stein and I was looking, you know, um, here we are four, two years into Trump, nothing was happening. So I actually said, you know, let's go ahead and try libertarian. Yeah. You know, so 2018, I actually ran as a libertarian candidate for our state legislature. Awesome. You know, I, and so I, I, that that's you bring up a good point there because um, a lot of people want to say that Trump is anti-war because he hasn't involved us in a new war, right? Um, and then they also try and say that he's anti-war because he's drawn down troops in certain areas. I almost find this is like again like folks drinking the kool-aid when they don't really go back and they look at the facts right the troop drawdowns haven't been significant at all a lot of the troop drawdowns have just been reallocations right, right. like um a lot of people point to like troops being moved out of germany and part of the reason for that is strategically i guess it was like i think it's nato isn't centered centered out of germany anymore it's centered out of the netherlands or denmark right wherever the troops went um so that's not really a drawdown. I mean, that's just basically kind of like moving around deck chairs on the on the Titanic. Yeah, right? like, it, it is um, pretty much. I mean, is your assessment of of his anti-war stance about the same as mine? Uh, yeah, pretty much it is. Uh, you know, we step back and we go, okay, well, what has he managed to do in the past three and a half years? He's managed to move some troops around. Okay, every so often we get some big press about him bringing the troops home. Yep. You know, problem is, is every six months he's bringing more troops home. How can you keep bringing troops home? Oh, yeah, because he replaced them. That's why he can keep bringing troops home every six months. Um, you know, and you step back and go, well, is he is he truly drawn down the wars? And then you go, wait, well, technically he's dropped more munitions than either of the last two presidents. So exactly how is that drawing down? You know, we have to replace every munitions he drops. Okay, so every bomb he drops in a foreign country, every bomb we sell to Saudi Arabia, you know, every bomb that falls on Yemen is a bomb we have to pay Lockheed Martin to replace. You know, one of the 12 Moabs, mother of all bombs, you know, that got dropped in. We have to replace that. You know, so he's dropped more munitions that we've had to replace, which is, of course, to the benefit of the military industrial complex. So exactly how is he helping reduce the size of the military industrial complex? He hasn't. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, what was one of the first arms deals that he signed when he got into office? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, right? yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and he was touting that as like a big win because it was like the biggest order ever. Um, and the only thing that anti-war people could see is great, like great more more U.S. government-facilitated conflict, right? So, like, I, I mean, the other problem is that you have kind of two sides of this. I mean, you mentioned that that complex or that ecosystem that's there. You have the U.S. directly involved in conflict, right? Yes. And you have the, the U.S. Uh, inflamed conflict. I mean, how many times, and you probably saw this firsthand, there were all kinds of reports of, you know, conflict that was happening in Afghanistan between warring tribes and they both had american munitions on the other side yes like how telling is that right <laughs> exactly you know we would support one organization one year the next year you know we'd replace who it was that was our informants and literally the people that were our allies six months before are now the enemies of our new allies and it's like 
slow. And this is why we ended up with such a bad disconnect. You know, we weren't making any grounds anywhere in anything that was going on simply because, you know, we weren't consistent from one unit to the next. You know, every 12 to 18 months, a new unit would come in and the rules would completely change. You know, we did not have a unity of command. We didn't have a consistent behavior with the local populations that they could count on. And literally the local warlords went, okay, so you're going to play it that way. We'll just wait out 12 months until the new guy comes in and he'll behave differently. You know, and that was a problem we had, you know, and not just Afghanistan. That was the exact same problem in Iraq, too. You know, whether it was a company commander, a battalion commander, a brigade commander, we always had that exact same problem. You, you know, any gains gained by one unit were lost by the next. So let me ask you this. So part of the vision of this country when it first started was the desire to not have a standing military. Yes. Right. The idea the idea was that militia was supposed to be the immediate response in any kind of conflict. OK. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the, the federal government could choose to basically gear up a military force in order to defend the country if it was threatened yeah. from an, an outsider and existential threat. Um, I mean, being a being someone who's who's been through military service yourself in active combat, that is that something that you still think that we need no military, or do you, uh, would you suffice with just a dramatically smaller military footprint and more of a kind of take care of home first approach? See, and this one's a real awkward situation, especially when you start taking a look at the libertarian platform, because Joe Jorgensen has come out and said, you know one well-armed yet neutral Switzerland. So what you're saying is don't draw down the standing army. The problem is, is as long as you have a standing army, the central power wants to use it. Yeah, so that's one of those things you step back and you go, well, do we really want to go all the way back to the Articles of Confederation where there was no central standing army, the individual states were allowed to call up the levies or the militias as they needed, to defend the nation as a whole. And you step back and you take a look at some of the things that have happened in World War I, World War II. Okay, like World War II, you know, after the end of the war, we actually sat down with the intelligence and the commanders from Japan and we asked them, so why didn't you invade the American homeland after, you know, Pearl Harbor? We step back and go, well, because behind every blade of grass in America is a sniper. You know, there is a hunter, there are subsistence hunters, they understand, you know, you don't invade a nation as it's like getting into a land war in Asia, right. you know, was essentially the idea, you know, except every American was known to be armed. Right. You know, so the homeland defended itself. You didn't even need a standing military simply because any invading army would have been met with resistance, you know, from the get go. So we step back and we go, well, why do we need a standing army then if they're actually scared to, okay, now these days it starts getting a little bit more problematic because we have heavy industrial centers. We've created a food supply chain. We have, you know, about half our population that has never touched a firearm these days. 
you know, we've automated our agriculture so that we don't have subsistence hunters on the scale like we did in 1945. You know, so it's like, okay, yeah, I, I can sort of see the point of needing a standing army in our current environment, in our current culture, but doesn't need to be as big as it is. Right. You know, and that's one of the things where we start getting into, we don't want it so big that the central authority thinks that they can use it for corporate crony gain, you know, which is one of those things that we have to deal with, or so small that it actually creates weakness within our border security. And so how do you set it up and decide exactly how much is the right amount of standing military? Or can we actually take it and go, you know what, we don't need the standing military. Our National Guard is more than adequate to anything that could come our way. And I mean, honestly, it is. Uh, we step back. Now, I actually come from a state that's got a very strong you know, nationalistic appeal. We have an awful lot of uh, young National Guardsmen who have joined recruiting. We got uh, the Orchard Training Range out here, which not a lot of National Guard troops come here to do training you know in much the same way that the army has their ntc and jrtc we actually got a training rate that so it's like we get guard troops coming in all the time that are training up on how to conduct operations you know like military operations other in case they're ever deployed and our units our air national guard is called up on a regular basis to go over and support troops you know so come from this area where we have a lot of capacity. You know, we have a lot of ability in order to mobilize and defend the nation in any location. Matter of fact, our National Guard was called to Washington, D.C., you know, by Donald Trump. You know, got stationed and, you know, sent to D.C. for two weeks. Got to hang out in Washington, D.C. hotels. <laughs> you know, learn some things that they probably shouldn't have learned, you know. <laughs> But we had an awful lot of these really great opportunities that came along. Yeah. But that's one of those things is, do we really need that? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like that you're, you're a pragmatist when it comes to that. Um, you know, uh, again, speaking to the diversity of kind of what's attracted to the Libertarian Party, you also have a, a bunch of folks who are anarchists, right? Yes. Um, or self, self-proclaimed anarchists. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I have to dispel this myth. Anarchists are not terrorists, okay? No. Anarchists are like the ultimate minimalist, right? Like as far as government's uh, size and control, right? Um, And not because they want to, you know, uh, uh, basically steal from people and and cause destruction. They want minimal government overreach into their life, right? Yes. Um, Basically zero. Um, But so that being said, a lot of anarchists will say that we don't need any, we don't need any military whatsoever. Um, I, I think the, the truth lies in there somewhere. The one thing I'll, I always tell anarchists is, look, let's cut it down by 95% and then you and I can argue over the last five, right? Like, right. Let's, let's do something. Well, hey. but, I think you brought, but I think you brought up something important too is most of these issues are not just one note issues. There's something else at play that we also have to address. Right. So, for instance, the size of the standing military, there are other dynamics there in terms of how we view the Second Amendment, 
whether or not the militias are well populated and trained enough to be able to take over for you know those military yeah. units that would step down um you know it, one of those things i I've, I've actually i've looked at idaho a couple times as somewhere to move to um because i actually have an appreciation for that there's there's more of a sense of individualism in idaho than in some of the other more you know blue states in the country and maybe even some of the red states um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting dynamic. I mean, I, from, from that standpoint, I mean, would you say that, like, if you had to throw a number out, I, I hate to, but if you had to throw a number out and you were looking at, you know, how big the, the military is now versus what it should be, I think it's like half, or it's like, you know, cut it back, cut it down by 75%, or is that just something that we would have to figure out in terms of what made sense once we changed our foreign policy ideas? A lot of it is we'd have to figure out what our new foreign policy ideas are. And one of the things is, is we have 11 aircraft carrier groups right now. I mean, each one of those aircrafts constitutes the equivalent of an army division as far as personnel goes and resources and expenditures. You know, so, and, you know, uh, what is it? I'm trying to remember. Um, admiral's billet, you know, the flag officer billets, you know, that come with an army division or an aircraft carrier, you know, unit, you know, you start looking at how many flag officers are involved in that. And you go, each one of these is a six figure income, seven, nine, I think seven figures these days, you know, after you take in all the compensation that goes with it in order to keep them doing their job, you go, that's expensive. Yeah, especially when most of them are close to 60 and getting ready to retire and become lobbyists for a military industrial complex, you know, corporation. Yep. Yeah, but you got all of these billets and it's like, do we really need 11 aircraft carrier groups? Right. You know, I, the general Ford aircraft carrier that they just commissioned, you know, is like, in and of itself is worth two of you know the other of our oldest ones and it's like wow our ability to project force around the world you know and each one of those constitutes a significant amount of firepower do we really need the cost that's associated with that is there that much piracy going on in the world (laughs) how much do you figure the American public's inability to conceive of that amount of money as a problem with when they get to the voting booth and whether or not they truly understand who they're voting for. It's, it has a lot to do with it. Reason why is because what was it? 1972 Nixon went off the gold standard. We went with the OPEC dollar. You know, we've been playing this game with uh, modern monetary theory ever since then, you know, and, Honestly, I'm surprised we've been so successful with it over 50 years. You know, every other country in history that ever went with the MMT, uh, you know, lasted all about five years before hyperinflation totally tanked their economy. You know, we've managed to keep this imaginary money, you know, keeping the American economy going for close to 50 years. And a lot of that has to do with the way we've been able to maintain the balance in theory in Congress. 
And it's like we have a Congress now that has completely forgotten the intent of we need to make this tweak if it's going to work. We've given up on the tweak. And literally, we've said, okay, uh, the economy's going south because we did the lockdown. Let's just print more money. And it's like, um, that's the fastest way to tank your MMT. You know, I don't believe in it because of exactly this reason. You've decided that you can print more money to solve the problem. You know, at least when they limited the amount of money that went into the economy, which is what they've been relatively successful at for the past 50 years, you know, we managed to accept, you know, the little bit of inflation that came with it and the rest of that. But it's like this year, you know, we've what, 10 trillion now in subsidies and bailouts, most of which went straight to the top. You know, so the people who end up having to pay the taxes long term, you and I, you know, we we saw our twelve hundred dollars, you know, and our grandchildren will be paying the debt that went to make sure that Walmart and Ford, well, not Ford, Ford's actually been pretty good, but Chrysler, you know, continue to maintain and Bank of America are able to maintain solvency. It's like, yeah. um then we got to go back to Joe Jorgensen's. Yeah, there's no bailouts in capitalism, folks. There aren't any. Well, and, and, and back to back to the question about whether people can conceive about this amount of money. There are people that are squabbling over twelve hundred bucks. Like it's almost like the Middle Ages. Right? They're they're squabbling over bread and soup to stay alive when off of their backs, ninety percent of the stimulus money they'll never see. Exactly. Right? So like. You know, ten percent of the stimulus money ended up in a check. Like, whoop de doo! That's supposed to like that's supposed to make me feel better about the fact that nine, ten times that amount got borrowed off of the name of myself and my kids and my grandkids to pay off. Like, I, and and it's like we've gotten to the point where I, I really worry that we've gotten to like closer to the end of this experiment than the beginning because it's almost like people can't see the, the cliff. They're still moving headlong toward the cliff and and no one has pulled up on the reins yet, right yeah um but i i just try like i i i need to pull it up again because I, even i've forgotten just the conceptualization of what a trillion dollars is oh yeah how many i mean you guys don't have a pro football team up there but i would guess like maybe boise state stadium right, right? like how many of the football stadiums at Boise State, you would have to fill up with a hundred dollar bills just to equal one trillion dollars. Now, 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 think about you know the fact that right now Pelosi and Trump are talking about like, well, it's not one point six, it's one point eight, or it's two point two. They throw around like you know half a trillion dollars like it's a tip at a restaurant. It's cr- it's crazy. Exactly. Like, how, how far are we away from Zimbabwe? <laughs> is the question if they're uh, just well, and, and that really is the problem is is we aren't that far you yeah. know and this is actually one of the scary things um and it's actually scary from a libertarian perspective as well because the main reason we've been able to successfully promote our modern monetary theory, our chartalism, you know, this imaginary fiat currency for the last 50 years is 
our ability to project our military. I mean, literally, we are holding the rest of the world at gunpoint saying, you will honor what we want our money to be worth, or we will invade. That's scary, especially when you step back and you go, well, I want peace in our world. And in order to create peace in our world, I need a foreign policy that brings all of our troops home. Well, once I commit to bringing all of our troops home, every other nation in the world that we've been bullying to honor our perceived value of our money now looks at our money and goes, well, are they still going to enforce it on us? And and then we start playing this little game of, you know, how, how much is your dollar really worth? Yeah, so it's one of those where we almost have to go in and at the same time that we create this peaceful environment around the globe by bringing our troops home, we actually have to go to a hard currency again. You know, we literally have to say, the day we bring our troops home is the day we go back to a gold standard, period. Yeah, because... The fallout, if we don't, is literally hyperinflation here at home. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that needs to be communicated both in terms of uh, how complicated the problem is, but how absolutely screwed up big government types have made things. Right. Right. Like they, they have they have literally ruined. If you think about it, if we try and peel back the onion and use it the wrong way. Right. Like. They've literally screwed up the entire world. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that's the that's the the, the take home, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely on board with you. Like, I, I think that the, the only reason why the government regulates currency is because of taxation and basically the control of commerce, right? Like, that's the only reason why they don't like alternative forms of currency. Bitcoin is not favored. Gold is not favored. I mean, hell, back in the day, you'd be, you used to be able to trade a, a barrel of oil or, or a bushel of wheat as, as almost like currency. Yeah, right? exactly. It makes it makes it a little bit more efficient to have some kind of medium of exchange. But the, the extent to what it's regulated now is, is obviously a control tax. Um, well, you, and you're right. You're right. You, you step back and you actually take a look at what we've done to the health care with the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. You know, even right up until the Affordable Care Act, if a physician wanted to accept an alternative form of payment, they could. You know, literally, if you had a country doctor, you know, you could pay him off with a side of beef. Yeah. You know, and it's like the second the Affordable Care Act went into place, it's like, no, you can't accept that anymore. Yep. Your yep. client has to pay you cash. And it has to be through an insurance company or you don't get paid because we'll throw you in jail for it. And it's like they literally took that option out of the healthcare scenario, you know, that was an American standby for close to 200 years. Yep. You know, send the doctor by, hand him a chicken and some eggs. And, you know, that, that was your checkup. You know, yeah. Well, that was that. That's the entire idea be, behind individuals being able to conduct in you know business in any way that they fo- they feel like they want to conduct business. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah. And if 
that you have two people of sound mind and body that can autonomously conduct business with each other, it's up to them. It's a negotiation. They get to do whatever they want. Yeah. As soon as you inject government into it, now it becomes, okay, well, we're only going to allow you to do business within this box, and it can always only be this currency. And it creates a situation where, look, um, uh, part of the issue that we have nowadays, like you were, you were talking about kind of like um, you were talking about, you know, the environment before and, and kind of what happens there. I mean, part of that conversation has to do with farmers and how cash poor farmers are. Yeah. Well, farmers used to be able to live a much better life, at least local farmers. A lot of people forget that now most farms are industrial farms. And oh, that's yeah. Because they're the only ones that uh, basically are taken care of by the lobby and get the majority of the subsidies from the government. But, you know, local family farmers used to live a better life because they could straight up barter their way. And they still can today, but from, you know, it's it's frowned upon. And a lot of people have moved away from that practice now. So there's less opportunity for them to do that. Well, it's, um, it's huge because for the longest time, you know, the lobbies, you know, especially for the mega industrial farms, you know, deliberately went after small time farmers. You know, uh, Monsanto and their intellectual property rights suits that went in and actually, you know, the few individual family farms that were being able to do well that ended up adjacent to one of these massive Monsanto farms. You know, they were being sued out of business left and right because an investigator went in and found the intellectual property rights had infected or infested their property, however you want to say it. You know, it like took about 15, 20 years before agricultural lawyers finally went in and said, you know, no, um, that isn't what happened. They didn't steal your intellectual property. Your intellectual property wandered onto their land. And it literally it's a pollution case. It was a pollution, a pollution case. case. Yeah, it was a pollution case. And it took like 20 years for them to get around to where the farmers finally got with these lawyers and said, no. It's a pollution case. You know, I didn't steal anything. They polluted my property. You know, they made my organic farm non-organic by their pollution. Yep. You know, and yep. it like took 20 years. But by that time, the damage was done. Yeah. You know, so of no, course. I, 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 lo I love how Democrat, I, I mean, it's usually a Democrat thing because they're a little bit more pro-regulation than yeah. uh, Republicans purport to be. But they're always like, well, pro-regulation helps individuals and, and middle class. And you're like, no, it, it hurts them, right? It, it would help it would help the middle class and the poor if every single regulation only applied to every company that made like a billion dollars and higher. Right. But it, but, but it never does. No. And the problem is that you always have a lobby that's supporting a, a large business behind that regulation who's in that elected official's ear that says, you know what? sucks but you know we'll bite the bullet we'll do what's right for the american consumer and all the while they're laughing behind the scenes because all it does is block out competition it does that's all it does like they can have an entire building full of regulators that all they do is fill out paper all day long mm -hmm. to submit to the to the federal government you know it's the mom and pop shops it's the mid-sized companies that are the true true job creators the true you know growth potential for the united states that are getting screwed in there that situation. Okay. So when I was going through Boise State University working on my uh, general science studies degree, 
uh, one of the classes. Did you, did you, so you mentioned general science. Was there one particular science that you liked? Uh, well, it's, it was a general studies degree, and it just happened to be okay. a bachelor's of science. But okay. it was like that multidisciplinary, you well, know, a little bit of everything. Little okay. bit of everything. We're going to throw in all of your previous credits from your military experience and this, that, and you, and you get to make your own degree. You know, but it was a general studies. And I actually took sustainability as a minor in association with that. And one of the classes I had was taught by a Department of Environmental Quality. Okay, so DEQ, that's the state version of the EPA. Okay. And he would sit and he'd talk about the policies. And like one of them was the burn policy. Okay. And you're looking at the regulation and you're realizing. Okay, the maximum the Department of Environmental Quality can fine someone for a burn is $10,000 a day. Okay, and you begin to realize, well, you got this small operation and you got this big operation. And if the big operation decides that, you know, they need to go filterless for a day, you know, and they hit a max burn, you know, it doesn't matter how much they burn. The max they're going to be fined is $10,000. Yes, literally they can burn through more in a given day and create more pollution. And the max fine is going to be $10,000, whereas the smaller operation still has the same max fine. But they don't have enough revenue to pay the fine that the big operation does. Yeah, and you start to realize, wait, so the big operations, this is just the cost of doing business. Yeah, this is literally a convenience fee for them for the day because they're going to pay the $10,000 and they're going to do $100,000 in pollution damage as a result. You know, whereas a smaller one, even if they were running on max burn, will only do $10,000 worth of pollution damage. And you go, well, here's your barrier to entry. You know, this smaller organization is actually more efficient. You know, it runs its filters. It's the new technology. But you are literally putting it out of business because the larger one can afford to pay the convenience fee. Yep. You know, rather than actually holding them responsible for the totality of the damage they're doing. I, you know what really, you know what really, uh, like called my attention to that. It's and it's a semi-recent um, thing that came to mind. But it, it's so uh, I'm based out of New Jersey, right? Yes. And so in New Jersey, we have a bunch of super fun sites. Oh like, yeah. You know, a bunch of the other states. Okay. Uh -huh. um, but just how, just how flippantly the fines were negotiated on those sites was it was so telling because it was like, look, if, if, if the EPA and the regulations that are on the books are meant to, one, protect the planet from population, and two, generate revenue to do cleanup, which by the way, that's another question, like oh, whether or not the money question. actually ends up getting to do the cleanup versus just gets chewed up in you know government bloat and expense. Yeah. Um, but how, just how crazy it was when a, a potential fine of a billion dollars got negotiated down to like, you know, 800 grand. And you're like, mm -hmm. that is like, that's pennies. It's it pennies is. compared it to is. the overall damages. 
you know? Yeah. And, and I'm not an – I mean being an advocate – a libertarian, I'm not an advocate for the government, government to be handing out those fines. I think those fines should be class action lawsuits on the part of the people within the immediate area that exactly. are affected by the pollution. Exactly. Right? But, but that being said, even with that ridiculous mechanism in place, they're still just kind of like throwing away fine money like it's like it's nothing and renegotiating it like it's the price on a used car. Like it's nothing. I mean it's like um, – it's extremely telling. When, whenever – I don't know if you've ever watched this if you're like a History Channel fan. Right. Um, but so I watched uh, Men Who Made America. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen that series? No, I so haven't actually watched it. But yeah. So they were talking about the robber barons and how the robber barons effectively got the idea and started the trend of buying presidents, right? Mm-hmm. It it backfired on them because I forget who it was. It was uh, one of the presidents who died in office, died, and the vice president then enacted antitrust legislation <laughs> and broke up Standard Oil. Right. It backfired on them. Um, but Well, breaking up Standard to- Oil backfired oh. – on breaking it up, but anyway, you know the Rockefellers, well, and, and, and now Exxon Mobil is basically what Standard Oil used to be, right? Yeah, like it just took them an amount of time to buy it back. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, I mean, every single one of those cases just kind of shows you that, like, what 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 gets said in public or during campaign races is it's not as good as the the money it's printed on, right? Like it's it's just a promise to get votes, and then what actually happens after the fact is almost immaterial. To people until the next election cycle, which is which is kind of uh, really disappointing. But um, all right, I, I've, I've taken a ton of your time. I, I'll give you uh, I'll give you a grab bag. One less last topic or issue you want to kind of chat about before we wrap up. Okay, so we already covered the EPA issue, and we've covered the bring our troops home. Yeah, the next one, and of course, this one always catches an awful lot of flack because you know libertarians are just Republicans who want to smoke weed. Uh, But the legalization of marijuana. Now, one of the things I actually want to do is I want to go through and deschedule. Just remove marijuana from all legislation all across the United States. Now, of course, there's an awful lot of issues with that reason why is because, yes, you don't want minors, you know, smoking, especially the marijuana that we got today. You know, the, the marijuana when I was growing up, you know, the CD, you know, Mexican skunk, uh, you like know, grass clippings <laughs> compared to what you get today when you walk into a dispenser. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the quality is so much better. So. But it's one of those things. Does the government have a responsibility to regulate something that is indeed medicine? And above all, you know, do we continue to maintain prisoner status for all of those people who have been arrested for selling it or using it, you know, in the last 50 years. You know, we understand the war on drugs was a creation specifically to target, you know, what at the time was, okay, the Black Panthers, Young Lords, uh, you know, uh, the Young Patriots. You know, this was the Rainbow Coalition that met in Chicago in 1969. You know, these were all Appalachian socialists. Okay, now, if you look at Appalachian Socialist versus voluntarist libertarianism, you know, you realize it's the same thing. You know, these were volunteers. These were community organizers. They were pulling together their community, you know, in order to shore up people so that they had that collective ability to negotiate wages and defense of their communities, you know, 
and then all of a sudden Cohen, uh, Co-Intel Pro, you know, the FBI just went in and decimated, you know, these young community organizers, you know, left and right and turned everything right back over to the industrialists, into the cronies, you know, the friends of the government and said, you know, collective wage negotiation is a no-go unless it's done through our approved agents. Yeah. And it was like, what? You know, but at the exact same time, the government went in and said, okay, free lunch programs. Got it. Black Panthers did good with free lunch programs. Let's make it a federal program. You know, and here we are 30 years later, we got, you know, principals getting ready to starve kids out because the free lunch program ran out. It's like, uh, dude, that program was put in place for a reason. You know, what are you doing? And it's like, that's why we didn't want government touching it in the first place. Right. You know, because the second the feds took control of it, we lost community organizers. We lost community organization. We lost that freedom of association that was created by people who needed to help each other. And we put everybody on the door. Yep. You know, we now had... I want to specifically also kind of like draw a line when you talk about like Appalachian socialists or, or yeah. you know, kind of like more collectivist type folks. Um, a lot of people also get that as the huge misconception. Collective bargaining is not inherently an anti-libertarian thing. No, it, it becomes anti-libertarian when it's required, right? Like yeah. when it's compulsory, right? Mm -hmm. So like in New Jersey, when you get your full-time teaching position, you know, your first paycheck automatically has dues taken out. Yes. Right? And you have no choice. Um, and that's completely different than that group who, who essentially came together as individuals. I love this. I, I love to say this. It might not even be true, but the, the idea e pluribus unum, right, didn't necessarily just mean the states and the colonies. It meant all, all of the individuals yeah. that were within those territories that decided to band together. So anyway, um, I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. So. Yeah. yeah, but we actually needed to go back to the original issue anyway, and that was the use of the war on drugs to justify, you know, the breaking up of these communities. And yeah. a lot of the evidence against those individuals was planted. You know, we know it was planted. A lot of these people were not drug dealers. They were not even users. You know, but the war on drugs allowed an easy plant and it was difficult to defend against, especially at the time. So now here we are 50 years later after that, and we are still putting people in prison. And the 1994 uh, crime bill, Joe Biden, you know, bust him out on this one, you know, mass incarceration in the United States. OK, we just started. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm going to go back. The 13th Amendment, I'm going to bust on, you know, Abraham Lincoln and everything that happened after, you know, 13th Amendment. People say, well, that ended slavery. No, it didn't end slavery. It just repackaged it. You know, it turned it from, you know, individuals being able to own to now you are state property. You commit a crime, you're now state property. The state can lease you out to individual corporations. Slavery didn't change. It was just repackaged. You know, and when biden created the 1994 crime law what he did was he created a very large relatively passive 
prison population. Because these were nonviolent criminals that were being arrested. Yep. And all of yep. a sudden, mass incarceration became profitable again. Yep. So it's like for me, one of the big things is is the nonviolent crimes, the justice reform, the legalization of marijuana, and get those people out of prison. You know, we've spent 50 years putting people in prison, turning them into slaves of the state, property of the state, based on a bogus concept created specifically to disempower communities in the United States. Yeah. And I, I realize a lot of that comes across as, wait, that, that's, that's anarcho-communism there. No, no, it, it, it's libertarian. It is the ultimate expression of libertarianism. You know, people should not be property of the state, period. Yeah. And that's one of my big things moving forward. And, and so part of the reason why I'm, I'm, you know, I like doing these interviews is because all, all of these topics require a lot of education for people who aren't kind of like immersed in it, like, like you and I are, who actually question a lot of this stuff and we're like, okay, well, who is this group? What do they believe? What do they actually do? A lot of folks read headlines, right? And, they do. You know, and there's a lot of terms that get thrown around every single day, which are completely inaccurately used, right? Um, but, you know, the, the, the difference between, you know, say like an anarcho-communist communist and like more of kind of like a centrist libertarian is it's scant. It's like, it's, 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 it's very little. I mean, if you ask an anarchist, they'll say it's a lot because <laughs> they'll say even 1% of something when I want zero is too much. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, it is a problem, but the thing is, is I've stepped back and I've actually looked at the different philosophies and you realize that whether you're anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-communist, you know, the ultimate end state, of your philosophy comes down to literally that 1% at the bottom tip that says, this is liberty realized. Yeah. You know, as long as you aren't going up to somebody and taking their stuff from them, you know, which is of course a violation of property, right? You know, your individualism, you know, you're stealing the fruit of somebody's labor, you know, it's, and they start going, but this is private versus personal property. You know, if you made it, it's yours. Just get over it and walk away. You know, but as long as you're respecting that you made it, it's yours, which is very much a Marxist idea. It's very much a capitalist idea. You made it, it's yours. Nobody else, you know, deserves it. You yeah. alone deserve that. Yeah. yeah. And you start taking a look, you know, no bailouts in capitalism. There is no philosophy more anti-corporate than no bailouts in capitalism. Yeah, that's true. You, you, I, you know, you step back, but the corporation, not if we stop bailing them out, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> I, you, you raise a really good point. I, I, I think what also gets lost by a lot of people is most of us want the same result, right? Yeah. We differ on the mechanism, right? But That's ultimately it. The same result. That's ultimately yeah. it. Is which mechanism do we implement first? Okay, your ANCAP say let's get rid of government first. Your ANCOM say let's get rid of the corporation first. Well, it doesn't matter as long as you get rid of one of them; they're both gone. 
right. you know, it, it may not seem like it at first because of the deterioration that goes with it. But I mean, you take a look at how much subsidies go to your top 10 corporations in the United States right now because of government protectionism, because of government circulation. You know, the number of properties owned by Amazon in America right now that are currently property tax free for the next 10 years. They wouldn't have built it if they didn't get the tax free status for the next 10 years. Who's paying for their tax free status for the next 10 years? The small businesses responsible for competing against them. Well, yeah, every single mom and pop that would sell a, a widget that's not now that's selling less widgets now, right, mm -hmm. is essentially now also because of government paying or subsidizing to pay for the infrastructure that Amazon is using. So, like, for instance, when Obama stands in front, which, by the way, he, he stole this, I believe, from Elizabeth Warren. But when Obama stands in front of the American public and says, you know, if you built a company, you didn't build the roads, you didn't build the the water system, like you didn't build that, right? He's actually not incorrect. No, they didn't pay any taxes for that crap. You and I did, right? right? But the problem is that the rally cry is directed in the complete wrong direction because people don't understand truly what's being said, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the ramification, like that was a true statement. But the direction people headed off in with their pitchforks and their torches was a completely wrong direction. <laughs> it was. It was very much. Yeah, but this is one of those things. Uh, about two, three days ago, I actually sat down with one of our local chamber of commerces and did a conversation very much like this, a little town hall asking about, you know, and it was like, well, what are you going to do for small businesses? You know, because despite all of this, small businesses all across the United States are still collectively the largest employer in the United States. Yep. You know, so what are you doing to enable small businesses? And it's like, well, one, I'm going to get government regulations out of the way. You know, I'm going to stop making small businesses pay for those big corporate infrastructures. You know, literally step back and say, you know, your local government has a responsibility to make sure that your small mom and pop isn't being taxed you know, to cover the infrastructure being moved in by a big box store. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things I never really understood why it was so difficult for a local city, you know, a chamber of commerce, you know, somebody who's had an economic degree, you know, to sit down and say, well, who's actually going to bring more business? Is it going to be the small mom and pop who, you know, bought a franchise from Ace Hardware? Or is it going to be the massive Home Depot corporate store? Can I, can I take a very cynical tact to Please. answer that question? Please. The answer to that question is it's easier to pander for one $5,000 campaign contribution check than $150 ones. <laughs> it is. Obviously. I, obviously it's situation dependent, right? Like it's not, that's not always the way it happens, but, or maybe it's just a complete misunderstanding of economics. But look, if you're only one person and you got to fundraise for your political life every single day, I, I'm sure some of them make that, you know, do that math in their head. And, and there is that, but that's one of the reasons why I think city council shouldn't be a full-time job, mm. you know, 
you should have to live within the community that you create, you know, live on an income, you know? So it's like, if you're earning six figures as a city mayor, you know, New York withstanding, you know, some of the cities in New Jersey, you know, where you're looking at a million plus people, you know, withstanding that, you know, if you're making six figures, you know, as a city mayor, you're making too much. You know, you shouldn't be making more than medium wage, uh, median wage of your city's employees. That way you have to live on the exact same economy you're creating for all the residents of your city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And you know what? If, if you shrink the budget, right, if you shrink the overall budget and require now, what's interesting is, so you made the point earlier on when we were talking about the difference between kind of like the libertarian philosophy on the federal level versus on the state and local level. Yeah. It, it does shift a little bit, but truthfully, you know, some of it, some of it still applies. Luckily enough, a lot of states have a state amendment that require a balanced budget. Yes, they so do. That, that, that controls things a little bit, but, but there's ways around it. I mean, they, they find mm-hmm. ways to kind of skirt that, that requirement. Oh, yeah. Um, but at least on the local level, I, I always felt that, look, I don't want to have to pay any tax, but if I do pay tax, I would rather it actually be inverted. I would rather pay the majority of my tax locally because at least I can go to a town council meeting and, you know, complain to the mayor and complain to the council exactly. that represent me. I can't go to DC. I live in New Jersey. It's a four and a half hour drive with no traffic. I can't go to D.C. every single week in order to protest some bill. You live in Idaho. I it takes me five days to drive that. there. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, you know, yeah. and, and how do you how do you feel that you're going to get represented well by someone? I mean, we basically send hitmen or, or bagmen to, to draw a New Jersey, uh, you know, organized crime reference. We send bagmen to D.C. to get our money back is basically what we do. Well, right? and that's what it is, you know, and it's. Okay, so here in Idaho, we have an organization, and I bust on them a lot. Reason why is because they are a uh, fiscally conservative organization, you know, and they look at government spending and they say, okay, you need to stop doing this because it's costing too much money. Okay, the problem is, is what they choose to target. Everything they choose to target that costs us money at the state level, if we stop doing that, we lose federal funds. So it's like, slow down. You're not being cost effective with this. You are not helping preserve, you know, you're not helping us get back the money that Washington took away from us in the first place. You know, you're literally creating a situation where Washington can tell us to screw ourselves and they're going to keep our money because we broke the rules they created before they would give it back. Right. You know, so the, the secret should be, you know, Stop targeting the local legislation and the local rules that's going to cause us to lose the federal money. Focus on getting the federal government to stop taking the money in the first place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean, eventually you, you go after the municipal budgets once <laughs> once you get the federal budgets down enough. <laughs> you know, and, and that's like one of those things. So we were prompt and I, I catch a certain amount of flack for this because I supported the Medicaid expansion here in the state of Idaho. Okay. Reason why is because the money was taken from us and it was promised back provided we did these things. Yeah. So I'm like, look, 
They took it. I want it back. Do the things to get the money back. I will support that because, okay, it was taken from us in the first. I'd have preferred it not to have been taken from us in the first place. But I don't want them keeping it. Yep. Yeah, I don't want them keeping it. Give it back. Okay, we'll go ahead and conform to the rules. Just give us back our money. Yeah, but it's like we really need to go to Washington and say, you know, stop taking our money in the first place. Yeah. You know. Or or if you're going to give us money, stop putting ridiculous requirements on it. If you're going to give us money for something, your market for some kind of program, but then let us design it. Right? Like that's that's maybe the first step. You know, well, it, because it, it, they, they give – wait, what's the figure? If for every uh, – for every dollar in, in funds that comes from the federal level, there's like a buck sixty in mandates that come with it. Right. Right. So something ridiculous up, like that. I, I mean, you actually end up behind. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was there, there was. Um, I don't know if you remember after the after the subprime crisis, in a lot of municipal arenas, there were a lot of problems with like staffing of police officers. Yes. Okay? And so they kept saying, we need this amount of police officers and that amount of police officers. Regardless of whether or not you believed you needed more police officers, the federal government came out with a program. And we're going to offer you a certain amount of money to pay for hiring police officers to fill your staffing gaps. Yeah. The only problem was they paid the first two years and that was it. Mm-hmm. So as a taxpayer, if you were okay with that, you're bringing on salary. And so for two years, you don't feel it. And then all of a sudden, that third year, your property tax jumps. And you're like, whoa, what happened? Yeah. They're like, oh well, we had to fire, we had to, we had to hire five new officers, right? Like, or if you, if you then fired them after two years, you're right back in the same situation you were in before, if not worse. Or so, here's here's another one for uh, you. Okay, we went through the militarization of our police forces across the United States, right? We had all of this surplus equipment that the military-industrial complex had created for the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Only the army and the Marines weren't buying enough of it. So they had a bunch of extra. So they created this deal that sold that sold. And they literally gifted, you know, these MRAPs and practically tanks, you know, to local law enforcement agencies all across the United States. Okay. These aren't commercial. You can't just go out somewhere and buy, you know, a replacement part for it. There's only one place that you can go to get the maintenance equipment for these things. And now all of these law enforcement organizations are now responsible for maintenance of these high cost military equipment. So two, three years down the road, it's no longer just oil changes you're doing for these things. You literally got to start replacing parts on them. Yep. And the budget for maintenance on, you know, their SWAT team vehicles, you know, all of a sudden goes through the roof because they're no longer using up-armored SUVs. They literally got an MRAP, you know, from G, uh, you know, General Motors or someone, you know, yeah. and there's only one place that you can get that equipment to replace the broken part. It's like all of a sudden the budgets on the police departments are going up. And it's like it's it's equipment maintenance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and 
the best is it's a general fund, so they're not necessarily auditing which equipment it is that's being right. Exactly. You know, you literally <laughs> want your you know you need the mayors and you need the police chiefs to go in and say, okay, we're going back to the Ford Taurus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's your vehicle. Deal with it. You, everybody gets a Ford Taurus. We're no longer you know getting these. You know, but that's one of the problems we ran into with these federal boondoggles that help continue to maintain the wealth in these military industrial complex corporations. Yeah. And they're passing the bill on to the local governments, which, which feeds right back into that, you know, like uh, the criminalization of marijuana and Mm -hmm. also the the incarceration. So I I think what's interesting is they've essentially either I'll give them the benefit of the doubt say that they've unknowingly okay created these product cycles or these you know basically revenue ecosystems that are cyclical right like yeah oh yeah they just feed right back into each other every single year um with without any conversation about whether it creates value or makes us any safer or results in any you know uh decreased friction when it comes to starting or, or operating a business I mean, all those conversations never get had. It's just a matter of like emotional speak, and then you know whether you can rile up the mob. If you can do that, you can you can just keep the money machine churning. Basically, is what is what it comes down to. Yeah, and wow. that's that's one of the problems. Uh, Idaho has a very strong pro law enforcement, you know, group here, pro law enforcement. So when you talk about going in and doing police reform and justice reform, you know, it's like it's tough to talk about it because it's automatically you're against the police, you're anti-law enforcement. It's like, no, no, I'm not. You know, that's not the discussion being had here. The discussion is, is this abuse of power, you know, which is talking about abuse of power isn't anti-police. Matter of fact, it's one of the most pro-police things you can talk about because if you can create a situation where, the police aren't involved in these abuses in this cyclical program of jail them, lease them out, let them loose, jail them again, you know, is a revenue process, whether it's for a uh, private prison organization. You know, you got a couple of those that are out there. Uh, we kicked them out of Idaho, but, you know, um, we still have that process. We have our prisoners right now that are relatively low income wage workers for a number of industries, you know, here in the state, you know, um, it's a a hell of a way to run a railroad. I'll tell you that. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But it's still a railroad, you know, it's still a railroad. And it's one of those things we actually need to go in and take a look at. Okay. So one of the examples I got here, uh, we have a uh, meat processing plant here near one of our facilities, okay? The prisoners, they actually make quite a bit. I believe they get paid $9 an hour when they go out and work as trustees at this organization. Now, the thing is, is it is a meat processing plant. Yeah. Okay? How much would a union worker in New Jersey get for working in a meat processing? It's not $9 an hour. It's definitely not $9 an hour. You know, so, I mean, we could definitely be able to get these people. They're skilled. They're practiced at it. They can literally get out and do the job. 
you know, if it wasn't for the fact that they have a felony record with, you know, it's like you can do the job as long as you're in prison, but because you got a felony, we can't let, you know, and that, that actually goes back to the Kamala Harris issue. You know, the fact that she maintained uh, prisoners beyond their sentence in order to retain $1 an hour labor to fight fires in California was adjutant general for California. You know, we need to fix this system. And part of that is, is like Joe Jorgensen says, we need to stop incarcerating people for nonviolent crimes. Yeah. You know, and we understand that the creation of those nonviolent crimes had a racist basis. Yeah, and, and and even if they did, even if you give people the benefit of the doubt, or you're a denier of the, the purpose of them when they originally came into existence, yeah, you can fully appreciate the fact that the lion's share of the fallout hits that one community is basically oh, yeah. what happens, right? Yeah. You know, um. So again, it's underserved, it's like, overpoliced community. It doesn't matter what color, really. If it's underserved, overpoliced you will see an excessively large representation in your penal institutions. Yeah, that's just reality, you know. So, it yeah, is. we definitely need a philosophical shift. But, um, all right, I've, I've taken a ton <laughs> of your time. I, I want to say thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank um, you, I'm Matthew. I'm really glad we were able to do this live, too. So uh, hopefully a couple of people caught it, too, or at least you can share it. Um, and it'll be coming out on my channel probably in like a week or so whenever I can do some okay. editing. If, if Excellent. You can, uh, awesome. And Joe, that... have, a, have a great evening and uh, keep fighting the good fight up there in beautiful Idaho. Thank you, Matthew. You have a great time. And remember, family, friends, community, as long as we got those three things, we can make anything happen. Got it. Thanks, brother. Peace. Thank you again for tuning in. This is a quick reminder to subscribe, like, share, and comment to help get the message of liberty and freedom in front of as many folks as possible. See you next time on Why Libertarian.